I learned in school. Get your money every Friday. Happy endings are the rule. So divide up those in darkness from the ones who walk in light. Light them up, boys. There's your picture. Drop the shadows out of sight. Jingle bells, jingle bells, here we go. Just a couple more days. This is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw. We got the jingle bells here, folks. <laughs> Today is Tuesday. Tuesday, the 21st of December, the solstice, winter solstice. Every day, there's a little bit more light and a little bit less television. Let us pray, yes. From my pagan perspective, winter solstice is, well, it's New Year. It's the beginning again, as Gertrude Stein would say, the beginning again of being, living again. She's always talking about the continuing present. I must get back to Gertrude Stein in 2005. I've got to read Gertrude. Got to get esoteric again. Anyway, Friday night is Christmas Eve, yes. The night of the mother. I think I may have a hot toddy again. I think it may be time. The old world, the ancient world, the pagan world, mostly celebrated their festivals at night. That's my favorite thing, the the nighttime, you know, a day of the dead down in Mexico, All Hallows' Eve, the daytime stuff that was a little more masculine. If you're buying books for a grown woman, check and see if she has a book called The Woman's Encyclopedia of Myths and Secrets by Barbara G. Walker. It's actually, uh, the last time I got a soft cover, it was only 20 bucks. Uh, it's all about female mythology, you know, pre-patriarchal good stuff stories. Uh, it's my favorite reference book. Uh, Here's what she says about Christmas, Barbara Walker writes. Most pagan mysteries celebrated the birth of the divine child at winter solstice. Norsemen celebrated the birthday of their lord, Frey, F-R-E-Y, at the nadir of the sun. That's the darkest days of winter known to them as Yule. Now, the night of birth, that is Christmas Eve, uh, that was called Modranect. That's the Latin Matrum Noctum, the night of the mother. And that was supposed to be a big deal. That was bigger than Christmas Day. I, I always uh, broke down and let the Christmas happen on Christmas Eve because my kids couldn't sleep and I, I just hated to get up early seemed to me agony. Why not just get it all over with and then eat lots of food and pass out? And then Christmas Day, we just sort of lay around and moan. Uh, I love all those pagan uh, 
what you call that, the opulence and the uh, the wassail, yes, the wassail, have a little drink, the yule log and the lights and the mistletoe. Actually, I've got so many chili pepper lights all over my apartment, it looks like a seedy bar in there. It makes the kitchen much more cheerful. If I have to do the dishes in there, I want lots of Christmas tree lights, but I leave them up, you know, all year round. I get out the mistletoe and the holly and uh, lots of feasting and, <laughs> you know, it back in the old days, the early Christian churchmen, they were bitterly opposed to this sort of thing, this hedonistic behavior. They denounced the uh, feasting and the parties as carnal, carnal pomp and jollity. Yes, that's in Barbara Walker's book. She writes that, quote, Puritans in 17th century Massachusetts tried to ban Christmas altogether because of its overt heathenism. She goes on with a description of uh, the pantheon of pagan deities that are associated with the world tree. You know, those pagans, <laughs> they weren't about to have uh, one god monotheistic, too boring, you know. Christmas trees evolved uh, from pine groves, the uh, pine groves that were attached to temples of the Great Mother. Of course, that was in the Mediterranean. No white Christmas there. Uh, those temples, I think of the ancient temple of the Great Mother, the one called Byblos. We get the word Bible from the temple at Byblos. Supposed to be the oldest temple uh, on earth, the one that is now, well, it is located, of course, in the land we are now invading, desecrating, uh, laying waste. With the latest Christian crusade, oh, yes, what is my, my mantra this week, yes, uh, history doesn't repeat itself, it's just people who do that. Uh, once I discovered the ancient origins of solstice celebrations, I found that I could have a lot of fun at this season, uh, when I was a child, Christmas was a bacchanalia. Never mind all the uh, nonsense that we see now on television. That's just about, uh, oh, greed. I realize now that the early feelings that I had were genuine uh, ecstasy, you know, mostly, mostly just for the color and the smells. For me, everything centered around my own mother, my own dear mother who... Uh, was totally irreverent when it came to any religious observances. Uh, she was one of those, well, you know, we love music, let's skip the mass. She used to quote the um, philosopher George Santayana. You know, George Santayana wrote, uh, There is no God, and Mary is his mother. Now, in Gaia theology, that's in Earth religion, Gaia spelled G-A-I-A, uh, God is not necessarily masculine. He doesn't have to be an authoritarian father. Uh, oh, of course, there's that horned God. I always liked him. But we don't have to do lords or kings or monarchs. We can imagine uh, a being, well, a mother, a lover, a friend, you know, uh, the birth of a child and the birth of Christ, of course, by uh, derivation, yes, is about regeneration. And it's 
You see, it's not about the king thing at all. That developed along with all the other hierarchical notions, primate grandiosity and religiosity and the greed and the consumerism that everyone deplores in today's climate of patriarchal materialism, you know, corporate uh, crime. Uh, you know, corporate Christianity has nothing to do with the birthing of saints. If you looked at Cornell West's books, he uses the words prophetic Christians to describe uh, those who identify with Christ, who was, of course, murdered by the state. Uh, and he uses the word Constantinian Christians to talk of state religions, that is, religions used to oppress um, <laughs> something like what we see today. Uh, uh, any mother can explain all this to you in a minute. Last year, I sat down and uh, I had all my candles in front of me and I asked the great mother if she had any message for me, any orders, you know. We come to earth with these orders, unwritten orders. And I said, you know, uh, it's my 70th birthday. What should I do? And she just sort of smiled, that little archaic smile she has. It's like the one on the Greek statues. And she said, uh, <laughs> you have permission to do anything you please. Permission to party. Uh, ah, yes. That's why I got the jingle bells this week, but uh, <laughs> that's about all I got. I picked up a few more gifts at the bookstore. Yes, last week I was chattering away about the Oz books. So much material there, so much wonderful uh, Americana in the Oz books. I always flip back at the last minute. I go back to Charlie Dickens' Tiny Tim Time. Yes, Tiny Tim Time, actually. My favorite Charles Dickens book is Bleak House. But Charlie Dickens is looking better with time, with age. The message in The Christmas Carol, the standard book at this time of year, uh, is um, quite potent just at the moment. Uh, Scrooge, the image of Scrooge, can now be uh, seen as, well, the global gluttony everywhere, the tight-fisted corporate criminals who are happily exploiting not just the workers, not just the impoverished and the poor, but they are devouring Mother Earth herself. Uh, back in the 1950s, I remember we talked about Scrooge, you know, the story, and we thought it was, you know, cute and strictly for children, mean old Scrooge. But we thought of Charles Dickens as just... Uh, a writer of Torian sentimentality, and uh, so it is, so it is, that's exactly what it is. I was at the time at Mills College. Our dean, the very dramatic Dean Hawkes, she always wore an orchid, she would read aloud the tale of the Christmas Carol, Dickens' Christmas Carol, every Christmas. Now, attendance was not compulsory, of course, but one year I did sit through her rendition, and I must admit she gave it her all. I think it would be a wonderful custom to start again. We'll get a group going, and we'll read Christmas Carol cover to cover. Of course, at the time, that would be 1953, I think, as I was reading Jean-Paul Sartre's novel, Nausea, 
And uh, I just dismissed Charles Dickens as a social reformer, you know. Uh, I knew he had those cute characters, but I thought that it was, you know, a little tacky using dying children just to make the wealthy weep. Hmm. So he was, and so he did. My favorite passage now in A Christmas Carol is the one in which the ghost, one of the Christmas ghosts, shows uh, Ebenezer Scrooge two starving uh, little orphans, a boy and a girl. They are in rags and shuddering. They represent uh, ignorance and want. The ghost calls them the twin evils, ills of the world. And he looks at them and he says, Of these two, of these two, ignorance is the greater ill, the greater evil. Ignorance and want. How to choose and who is to say and how do we define these things, you know. I love it when my friends sit around measuring atrocities, saying my atrocity is more atrocious than yours, you know. What's happening in uh, Rwanda is worse than what happens in the Congo, that sort of thing. A hundred years ago, there was a great American scholar. uh, He wrote a masterpiece called The Souls of Black Folk. That's W.E.B. Du Bois. Here is what he says about uh, these things. He writes, Herein lies the tragedy of the age. Not that men are poor. All men know something of poverty. Not that men are wicked, who is good. Not that men are ignorant, what is truth. Nay, but that men know so little of men. Maybe that is it. Maybe that is it. The capacity to to love is the capacity to uh, empathize. Empathize, sympathize, to show compassion, to be passionate for all. Compassion is the passion for all. I guess it's what some people call Christ consciousness. Um, The French say that to understand all is to forgive all. That is, if you can completely grasp, uh, well, it's, it's a little tough, doesn't it, when you get to Hitler and some folks, but... I always wonder whether or not uh, Jesus Christ would forgive what some of his followers have made of his sacrifice. Of course, um, his followers can be divided into the wise and the foolish and, of course, the wicked and the murderous, true. But he did um, uh, create a legend, gave us a gift. Uh, last night I was searching for a poem I remember by Edna St. Vincent Millay, and I just can't find it. It's a poem called To Jesus on His Birthday. And uh, a friend gave it to me years ago. It's all about the tragic legacy of uh, Christ, the wrongs that uh, the Christian institutions... um, Well, I don't know. We used to argue. It was one of my favorite arguments in college, which is... uh, argument about whether um, Christianity had done more good or more ill. I'm afraid that I voted on the side uh, saying that it had caused more pain and suffering than it had brought about good. 
um, always religions seem to begin with a wise prophet, a prophet of love. And then along come the control freaks, the rule makers, the right wing, the orthodox, the hierarchical dudes, you know, um, bureaucrats. In the poem, Edna Millay writes of Mary's journey to Bethlehem. Yes, for this your mother labored in the cold. I remember that line. She goes on to describe, <laughs> yes, for this, for the shopping orgy, for the mad uh, spree that we all go on with the credit cards. We use these uh, gifts to represent our virtue, uh, our virtuous caring and sharing and giving, yes. The magic of the magi, the impulse to give. A little frankincense and myrrh here. Anyway, her poem ends with a line about the great stone uh, that's at the mouth of the tomb, Christ's tomb. And that stone, she describes it as the stone the disciples rolled away, but then she says the stone has been back upon Christ's mouth, stifling his words. Uh, oh, for at least a thousand years, my favorite quote personally from Jesus of Nazareth is his lines to the women. Uh, when he is in uh, his passion, when he's suffering, he says to the women, Weep not for me, O you daughters of Jerusalem, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For if these things be done in the green tree, what will be done in the dry? Or as the late Ronnie Reagan once said, you ain't seen nothing yet. <laughs> yes. Tiny Tim's to the right of me, Tiny Tim's to the left of me. Ah, it's so difficult. What is my favorite Zen line this week? Yes. Um, try to, yes, try to participate joyfully in the sorrows of the world. We have no other choice. Uh, do what we can, when we can. I was thinking last night, um, going through my videotapes and the music, the Christmas music, that sometimes theater, music, film, does do the work of religion, uh, at least for some of us. Um, I suppose uh, we've been saying for years that art is a religion. It's practice. It's a practice. Um, I think of theater as kind of left-wing theology here and there. Uh, there's a review, for example, I hope I have time to read it to you. I want to talk about the movies a little bit in case you're going to the movies over the holiday. There's a play uh, called Gem of the Ocean by August Wilson that's reviewed in the current New Yorker. Now, I know that uh, these airwaves do not reach Broadway, but uh, this is a uh, review by... John Lahr, the uh, uh, critic in The New Yorker. Let's see, the date on this is December 20 and 27. It's called Trouble, Troubled Waters. It's August Wilson's Gem of the Ocean. Uh, August Wilson has a ten-place cycle dramatizing African-American experience in the 20th century. And it's a whopper. It's huge, and I don't have time to uh, tell you all about it. Uh, this particular play, Gem of the Ocean, check it out. Uh, check out the review. It's wonderful. 
it has a character in it. I want to, I want to get the play and study the uh, character of Aunt Esther. She's a 285-year-old conjure woman. She's the repository of her race's historical memory. She's rumored to, quote, wash people's souls. Aunt Esther embodies African-American folklore, what Zora Neale Hurston calls boiled-down juice of human living. Now, the actress playing this role, <laughs> it'll seem strange to some of you. She was Bill Cosby's wife in the Cosby Show for many years. Uh, Felicia Rashad, R-A-S-H-A-D. She plays the conjure woman, and she's quite beautiful. Here she, uh, what is it, um, according to the reviewer, she gives an inspired performance of old age. She did the same thing last year uh, in the production of Raisin in the Sun on Broadway. Uh, let's see. He says she has abdicated glamour and the desire to be adorable. As a result, detachment and coyness give way to daring and compassion. He even describes her costumes. Uh, she speaks her own compelling metaphoric language. She tells this young citizen, uh, you got to find a way to live in truth. If you live right, you die right. Uh, <laughs> this is a wonderful play. I, I, I was looking here. They mentioned just one other thing. Let me tell you this one other thing that says, he says it's crucial to the spiritual dilemma of the play. Uh, there is a runaway slave and activist back in, um, let's see, 1904. We're in 1904. And uh, there's a young man, Citizen Barlow, yes, he's born into freedom. And the old runaway slave asks him, he says, uh, you know about the Civil War? And the young man doesn't. History is lost on him. He's the first of some of the stunned characters in this play who are, quote, left over from history. Uh, August Wilson depicts Barlow as a byproduct. That's the character who doesn't know the civil, anything about the Civil War. He depicts Barlow as a byproduct of a system of subjugation that stripped African Americans of their language, their gods, their history, and their sense of reality. Uh, yeah, the play is about this historical mutilation, but the thing is, it's a cycle of ten plays, and it's the sort of thing that Hopefully, maybe someday we'll be able to do here on KPFA. <laughs> yes. Wouldn't that be nice if we could do a great big play by August Wilson? Never mind, I'm running out of time. Just want to mention a couple movies in case you have time to go to the pictures. Everybody seems to hit the movies over the vacation. Uh, try to get to Hotel Rwanda. It seems as if it takes a movie. You know, to get people's attention, to get North Americans and people all over the world to recognize uh, genocide. It's ten years ago, folks. Um, Hotel Rwanda depicts the tragedy of uh, that land ten years ago. You know, the situation in Defer and Congo is still continuing today. But anyway, this movie centers on a hotel keeper. He's just trying to protect his family, take care of his own. But the... Uh, Tragedy overwhelms him, and uh, in the film, the arc of the film, he comes to realize that uh, family is all of us, you know. We are all parents to all the children. Once again, that's the old Christ consciousness. 
Why does it always take tragedy to make people see that big picture? I think that people who imagine themselves to be safe, and of course many of us are relatively safe, so many of us need to deny all that pain. What is it, you know, if we really recognized it, we couldn't go on doing what we do. I guess that's why we just pretend we don't see. Anyway, uh, next best on my list is Mike Lee's film, Vera Drake. That's the one which every member of Congress uh, should be required to see. It's about a working-class woman in London in the 1950s. She performs abortions. Abortion was illegal in Britain until 1967. If you are a teacher or if you know anyone who has questions about the history of abortion law, send them to this movie. And then there's the film Kinsey, Liam Neeson. He plays Alfred Kinsey, a scientist who gave us that Kinsey report back in 1948. It was titled Sexual Behavior in the Human Male and Nothing Has Been the Same Since. That one rocked the boat. And then he published a book on sexual behavior in the human female a few years later. And that one boxed the compass. He lost his funding at that point and died not long after. Uh, Laurel Linney plays his wife. She's very good. This movie is a serious, serious progressive effort in a time when the reactive backlash is pretty terrifying. Once again, I hope that teachers and progressives will send their students and their friends uh, to get some history on our Puritan heritage. Our difficulty dealing with our sexuality, it's still a big problem, you know. <laughs> yes, abstinence-only education. Uh, we are, uh, our culture is fraught with sexual politics and dysfunctional pathology. Uh, I think we think we know better, but uh, we're still pretty messed up in that area. Uh, I would suggest the film Finding Neverland if you're interested in looking back at Victorian pathology. Uh, it's a biographical picture all about the author of Peter Pan. Um, I think James M. Barry would be defined as a, let's say, sexually ambiguous. Um, he did follow the boys in the park. But anyway, Johnny Depp plays James M. Barry the man who created the myth of Peter Pan. His uh, Victorian psychological profile is tortured. I think it's beyond our imagination. I think that moderns suffer too. Sure, we suffer, but sometimes I think our hearts just aren't in it. <laughs> who said? Who said psychiatry or psychology has destroyed literature? Anyway, where have all the subtexts gone Truth is, we don't know ourselves any better than the Victorians did. Uh, we do know something about the effects of sexual uh, repression, but we misinterpret the information and use it to excuse ourselves, excuse our transgressions on the feelings of others and even our self-indulgence. Still, we're better off with the clinical facts. Yes, the truth will set us free. I think that, like the ancients, like pre-Christians, uh, we've got a vaguely pagan view of human sexuality today. We can label lust for what it is. Uh, whether James Barry's sexual ambivalence informed his story of Peter Pan is not as interesting as his psychological spin on childhood itself. 
childhood, that kingdom where nobody dies. Kate Winslet plays the mother of the real-life boys that James Barry used as models for Peter Pan. Peter is the boy who never grows up. Every Christmas, I reread it just to remind myself how quickly we grow old. All of us, except Peter. What was it Gertrude Stein said? What is the use of being a boy if you've got to grow up to be a man? Happy Christmas. Goddess bless us, everyone. Till Thursday morning at 8.20, this has been Jennifer Stone. Go easy, and if you can't go easy, go as easy as you can. In the Name of Love, the fourth annual musical tribute honoring Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. at Oakland's Calvin Simmons Theater, Sunday, January 16th, 7.30 p.m. Oakland's only musical tribute to MLK promises to be a soulful celebration in honor one of the great humanitarians of our time, featuring LaToya London from American Idol, the Gospel Hummingbirds, Oakland Youth Chorus, and the Oakland Jazz Choir. In the Name of Love benefits the Oakland Jazz Choir. Visit www.oaklandjazzchoir.com for details. See you January 16th. And you're tuned to 94.1 FM KPFA in Berkeley, 88.1 FM KFCF in Fresno, and Radio X in Seattle. Stay tuned for Hard Knock Radio. One, two, three, four. Y'all ready for this? Ladies and gentlemen.